just really, really thankful to be here today. Uh, hopefully, uh, we will be encouraged. Today's passage, uh, I will uh, tell you that it was tempting for me, uh, as last week we went four through eight and uh, didn't get through the whole thing. It was a little bit tempting for me to say, well, I'll just kind of skip that last little phrase there and move on to the next section uh, and not deal with it. But uh, beloved, I, I can't get away from it. Two or three of you came up to me afterwards and asked, okay, so what's that mean? Which means that I need to explain it. And I'm going to dig in a little bit on this today. Difficult, but good truth and very important truth for us to understand. As we look back over the last 200 or 2,000 years since Jesus' life here on earth, there have been millions of people who have believed in him. Praise the Lord, right? Many have turned from their sin and trusted in him to save them from their sin and the judgment they deserve. However, at the same time, more have rejected Jesus than received him. The church started with a small minority of Jewish people who believed and embraced their Savior after his resurrection. But the vast majority of Jews during Jesus' day and even after Jesus' day have rejected their Messiah. Then even the Gentiles, as Paul went around and as the gospel spread through the cities, some received Christ, but many, the vast majority of Gentiles have also rejected Jesus as their Savior. And today, there are 7 billion roughly people on the planet, and there are approximately 1 billion professing believers. And we all know that professing doesn't necessarily mean true believers. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So what is the narrow gate? What is the distinguishing feature of those who are on the way of life? The answer is faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way for eternal life. It's through faith in the Jesus revealed in the Bible is the only way that we are saved. What a person does with the Jesus of the Bible determines whether they are on the road to destruction or the road and way that leads to life. In our passage today, Peter explains clearly the two paths. And then it all boils down to what we do with the living stone. That is a uh, uh, simile for Jesus. He is the living stone. What we do with him determines where we are going. Today we will examine who is the living stone and who are who are not believing in the living stone. We will learn why people are in Jesus and why they believe in him. And finally, we'll explain the purpose of God's saving people for himself in verse 9 and 10. 
So let's look back down at your Bibles. Look in verse two, verse 4. We examined last time the living stone. That was Jesus coming to him as the living stone. Remember that was a simile to explain that Jesus was rock solid. He was the, the foreknown, the prophesied stone of the Old Testament. Believers come to Jesus despite his rejection by men at his first advent. He was rejected of men is what verse 4 states. But he is precious and choice in the sight of God. Next in verse 5 we saw that all who receive Jesus are also living stones. Becoming living stones. Believers in Jesus are in, in fact a temple of worshiping stones. Again, he's using figurative language to help point out that we are a part of a greater worship project that God is establishing. He's establishing a building. It's a building of people. And those people are the ones that worship him. We are being built by God's divine work. We are being made into a spiritual house. We are a holy, set-apart people, a priesthood to proclaim and to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are God's work to make spiritual sacrifices to God. This obviously is not talking about us making Old Testament sacrifices, right? It's talking about us laying down our lives in service to God and his people. It is giving, serving, loving, sharing, proclaiming the glory of God to the world. That's what we are. We are living sacrifices and holy priests to the world. Then we began to look at Peter's proof text from the Old Testament. He gave three. He gave passages from the Old Testament to show God's plan to save a people for himself through Jesus, the living stone. So I want to pick up on this point that we left off with last week and finish up this section, the prophetic promises of the stone and his reception in verses 6 through 8. Peter pointed to three scriptures that prophesied that the Messiah was coming and he would be received by some and rejected by others. Look at verse 6. Let's read that again. For this, con for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. God's word had emphatically predicted and prophesied that Jesus would be both received and rejected. This was God's plan all along. God ordained the rejection of his, of his own Messiah. It was God's ordained plan to have the Son suffer and die and be rejected by his own people. Now, before we get into the very difficult verse at the very end, 
I want to make a point here. Does God ordain sin? Does God ordain, sovereignly determine, decree that sin will happen? The answer, by just these verses alone, is an emphatic yes. And before we all say, wait a second, that's really harsh. That's mistreatment. Why would God, in his ordained plan, ordain for sin? We need to be careful before we start getting upset with that. Because let me tell you, if God did not ordain sin, we would all be bound for hell. Why? Because what was the greatest sin ever accomplished? The death of Jesus. The murder of the Messiah. The killing of God's own son. And that's what this says. We see it in this, pla in this passage. That God prophesied Jesus' death before it happened. God prophesied the rejection of his son before it even happened. God said this is going to happen before it even happened. Now did God give the evil intent inside the heart of the Jews to reject their own Messiah? No, I don't believe so. He's not the author of sin. He did not put the sin in their heart. But in God's amazing sovereign way, he ordained for his son to be rejected by his own people. There are two parts to this prophetic promises of the stone and his reception. There's the plan of God for the stone, and then there is the plan of God for his people, or for the people, the receivers and the rejectors. That's revealed very clearly in this passage. And it's very important that you note that all these passages are written between a set, the, the ones that are referenced of the Old Testament were written 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus came. So he ordained all of these this reception and rejection of the Messiah before it even happened. Can you tell me if you're going to sin tomorrow? Can you tell me what the sin will be tomorrow? Can you tell me what sin you will do a week from now? How about a year from now? How about the last day of your life? How about 700 to 1,000 years from now? God knew and ordained, but is not directly responsible for the sin 700 to 1,000 years before it happened of Jesus' own death. It's very clear from this passage. Is it hard to swallow at times? Yes. Is there some mystery there? Yes. But, beloved, we cannot go against what the Word of God says. It says it. If we have a problem with the Word of God, what do we need to do? Take it up with the author, but you better come very humbly. He's God. You're not. Look at this. Let's pick back up on the plan of God for the stone. We see first the providentially placed stone. In verse 6 it says, For this, contain, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay... In Zion, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. This references to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. 
written by Isaiah explaining what God is going to do. God says, I will lay in Zion around 700 years before Christ came. This little word, I lay, is an important verb, lay. Underline it in your Bibles if you mark your Bibles. I lay. It's the Greek word tithemi. It comes from the Greek word tithemi. And the idea is, is that it, it's established. It's an established fact. It's an established truth. God, behold, I establish in Zion a choice stone. Before it happened, I am going to establish Jesus as the choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Isaiah, again, is recording God's decree. This means God knew that this was all going to happen before it happened. Jesus' value was established before he even came to the earth. He was a valuable cornerstone. The metaphor emphasizes the importance of the stone to the builders, and to the building, rather. Jesus is not just a, a way to worship God. He is the way to worship God, the only way to worship God. He is the most important stone in the building. He is the foundation. He is irreplaceable. He is valuable. He is the choice stone. And despite his great value, I want you to notice that he, he's also the providentially rejected stone. That this is part of God's providential plan. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Beloved, you, you put this in your thought process for a second. You know, if I, if I knew that if I was going to walk into this room with my new son Samuel and all of you would look at him and sneer at him and reject him, I knew it was going to happen. Do you think I would have brought him into the room? I wouldn't have. <laughs> Beloved, God knew because he decreed that his own son would be rejected before it happened. He ordained it. And yet... What happened? The son came into the world. He came in knowing full well that he would be rejected. The father knew full well that he would be rejected. The Holy Spirit knew full well that he would be rejected. The Godhead knew that the son would be rejected. And it was decreed that it would happen. The stone which the builders rejected. This is a reference to the Jewish people. And their overall rejection of the Messiah. The rejected stone is actually, as said, the cornerstone. The metaphor of the cornerstone, again, emphasizes the enormous importance of Jesus. He is the foundation of everything. And he's the foundation of everything because he was rejected. Which is an amazing thought. How do you base a building on a stone that's going to be rejected? That seems so contrary, doesn't it? It goes against everything that our minds think. But that's God. The wisdom of God is foolishness to men. But God, right? He ordained Jesus to come into the world and be rejected by the builders, by his own people. Rejection did not mean that was no, there was no value in the stone. 
The problem was not the stone. The problem was the people. Jesus' rejection is also seen in the next scripture quoted in Isaiah 8.14. Notice it says, A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Beloved, do you understand Jesus is that stone of stumbling? Jesus caused the Jews to stumble. Jesus is the stone of stumbling, not because he sinned, but because he did not sin. And that's so crucial. Why do people stumble over him? Because he's perfect and we're not. (laughs) Jesus did not live up to the Jewish people's expectations, did he? They wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah that would embrace their worldview. And it doesn't work that way. This was ultimately because they were dead in sin. Jesus was also a rock of offense. He gave offense and aroused opposition everywhere he went. He was a stumbling block, a a rock of offense. He was a scandalous rock. For the Jews. The Greek word for offense here is where we get our English word scandal. Jesus was scandalous. The stone was scandalous for his own people. They hated the people that Jesus associated with. They hated where Jesus came from, Nazareth. They hated what Jesus did. They hated that Jesus rightly interpreted the law and showed them how they were missing everything. And all that they thought the opposite was true. They hated him because he spoke the truth. They hated him because he was the son of God. They hated him. He was a rock of offense. And the cross, beloved, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Why? Because not only was the Messiah telling all the truth and showing all that they believed was the opposite was true, he also died. Their Messiah was shamefully killed on a cross, mocked, spit on, beaten by everyone. They could not stand the idea that their Messiah would be So scandalous. Beloved, before Jesus came, God ordained this rejection of his own son. He was called and known to be a stumbling block, a rock of offense, before he even came. Again, if you were a father and your son would be known as that, would you send your son? Oh, beloved, but God's ways are not our ways. And God ordains pain for his own children. That hurts, doesn't it? It it doesn't always register in our minds, but it's God. It's who he is. And it's a glorious truth at that. For it's where we find hope, right? His rejection is where our sin is paid for, and all of us rejoice because Christ died on a cross to pay for our sins. The rejection of Jesus by the vast majority of Jews 
reveals the heart of humanity is wicked to the core. Mankind does not love the Jesus of the Bible. We are not a nation of people who love Jesus here in America. I want you to understand that. Please get that in your head clearly. We need to understand the accurate message of Jesus is not widely accepted. I was listening to a lady who was invited to speak at the interface, interfaith prayer service yesterday for the new president. She was kind of oblivious to everything that was going on. She was so happy to just be asked. They were in, interviewing her, asked her about her participation. Boy, she was excited. She said there were Muslims, there were Jews, there were all types of Christians. It was an interfaith prayer service because we want to pray for our new president. Then she let something slip. She said, they asked me not to pray in Jesus' name. She said, well, that's okay because some other people mentioned Jesus. Probably all the cults mentioned Jesus. In fact, she said this, something like this. I know Ishmael and Isaac will love each other in the end. She thought, no big deal. Beloved, do you understand there's really two main groups in our culture? There's the secularists that just reject God altogether. And then there's the interfaith people that think all ways lead to God. And then there's a minority small group. It's a fact. Why is the way that leads to destruction? Many go that way. It is that way. We must not think in our minds that, oh, just because somebody proclaims Jesus, they're on that way. For if they do not stand on the stone which the builders rejected, then they're not a part of Christianity. I know this is hard to hear. But, beloved, this is a big deal. Unity is not possible with other faiths. Period. This is part of the offense of Jesus. Do you understand? This is what makes him scandalous today. He says, I am the only way to God. No other way but through me. Period. End of story. And that's scandalous in our society. And it was scandalous back then. And it will be scandalous until he returns. And then every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is offensive to the world. Islam is a false religion that leads to hell. Period. Judaism today that rejects Jesus, are there Jews that receive their Messiah? Yes, but the vast majority of Jews reject Jesus, and guess what? They're headed towards destruction. Hinduism, Buddhism, all other religions lead to hell. It's judgment, and it's hard to hear this, isn't it? But it's the truth, and I'm not apologizing. Christ is Lord. Will you bow to him? That's the question. 
And any so-called Christianity that does not affirm what the Bible says about Jesus, him being the one and only Son of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a lost and a danger-filled path leading to God's destruction forever. Without faith in Jesus of the Bible, there is no hope. None. Jesus is the only way to be saved. He is the stone which the builders rejected. He is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. This is exclusive, isn't it? This is narrow-minded, isn't it? This is scandalous, offensive. This is hard to hear, but this is the truth. God ordained Jesus to be the stone, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. In our society, to be exclusive and Christocentric, focused on Christ alone, is viewed as intolerant, arrogant, and foolish. We're going to be tempted, beloved. Every one of you in this room are going to be tempted to compromise our testimony concerning Christ. You will be tempted. You will probably be tempted next week. But we must not compromise. Love for people may cause us to grieve. Do you hear me? We are going to cry. Do I grieve over lost relatives? Yes. Am I agonized in my soul? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts a lot. But love never compromises who Christ is. Never. My love for my relatives keeps me from compromising on Christ. For I know that unless they accept the rock of offense, they will not go to heaven. That's it. And if you truly love the world you live in, you will never compromise Christ. You cannot compromise Christ. We knew a person who had terminal disease and we had a medicine that we knew could heal them. And we would share this medicine. And that person, we knew that that person most likely would not take the medicine. <laughs> would we then say, wait, I think I'm not going to give them the medicine. I'm not going to offer the medicine because they might get offended at me. Oh, beloved, the most loving thing we can do is what? Share Christ, the exclusive Christ. We proclaim him, don't we? He's our hope. I'm calling on us, all of you, be bold with the truth. Share Christ with your lost loved ones. Be faithful, be steadfast, be a rock yourself. Proclaim the living stone. God providentially established Jesus would be widely rejected, but we must not compromise Jesus' identity to somehow make him easier to be embraced. Are we kidding? Are we kidding? This is what we do. Churches do. 
And we can fill this place up. I know we can fill it up. Do you understand I sold rainbow vacuum cleaners for a living? $1,400 and people bought them. I know how I could fill this building up. I'd fill it up by mellowing out the message, ramping up the excitement. Throw a little bit of money in there, and you got a full building. But then what would happen? We'd lead thousands maybe to hell. Because he wouldn't be the rock of offense. Oh, beloved. If our gospel is not offensive to the world, it might be that we are proclaiming another Jesus. Ouch. Facts. No, we don't offend just to be offensive. We don't offend just to look like we got it all figured out. But when we speak the truth in love, it offends people. Because Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Look over at this passage. I think it's one that's really good and it brings it all home, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Perfect. Perfect verse. Verses. 1.18-24. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to, to, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being called, effectually called, worked in by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And all God's people say, Amen. He is the power of God, isn't He? He is the wisdom of God, isn't He? And all of God's people, all of God's children say, Yes, and we delight in Him. Back to 1 Peter. We saw the plan of God for the rejection of his son. We see the plan of God for people. Again, this is a hard message. And I am not apologizing for the truth. But I am acknowledging this will take the grace of God for anyone to embrace these truths. Put simple, Jesus is worthy of complete faith and trust but faith in him is difficult. It's hard. 
So first, God's plan for people. This is the good news. Look at verse 6. Believers receive reward. Believers receive reward. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. Oh, isn't he precious in value to us? This says they will not be disappointed, our New American Standard. This should be translated, they will not be put to shame. They will not be put to shame. The believer will not be shamed at all. There is shame for everyone who sins. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So why do we not be put to shame? Answer, because he took our shame for us on the cross. Oh, that's a glorious truth, isn't it? And that is precious value. Is there anybody in here that wants to take the shame themselves? Oh, we love Christ. He's precious in value to us. We will not be put to shame because he took our shame on the cross. The Father judged the Son for us and we all worship him forever, won't we? All my sin is paid for, all of it. Every last thing I've ever done or thought evil against God, paid for. No shame. All God's people say, Amen. God is good, isn't he? He's worthy of all of our worship, isn't he? Would we do anything but proclaim him? No, he is so good. Believers will view Jesus like the Father rather than like the world does. <laughs> I look at Christ and say, precious choice stone. Precious value. There's a great value in knowing him. He's our all-satisfying Lord, isn't he? We love him. We are committed to him. Our hearts are attracted to him. Who's my favorite subject? Jesus. <laughs> I love to talk about my family. I love my wife. But Jesus? Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Infinitely better. <laughs> Infinitely better. He's so amazing. He's so glorious. Isn't he great? But not all receive him. Many reject him. They find no value in him. And instead, shame is headed their way. The rejectors receive doom. Look at it. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were appointed. They stumble. The stone indirectly causes people to trip. Jesus did not fit the Jewish people's preconceived image of the Savior. So they stumbled over him. Their lost hearts sought a Messiah that was contrary to Jesus. So when he arrived, they stumbled over him. This was consistent with their disobedience to the word. 
Beloved, this does not make sense unless we understand just how lost we are apart from God's amazing grace. Do you understand if you love the Jesus of the Bible and you are committed to him and you would lay your life down for him, it's only because of God's grace. Otherwise, you would be them. You would be just like Israel. Just like him. They were offended. Again, Jesus is scandalous to the lost. We so much want to think the best of people, don't we? Oh, I hear this all the time. We all want and long for every person we know to embrace Christ, don't we? I mean, it aches our soul, doesn't it? Our, na- our neighbors, our, our co-workers. How many of you in here, you grieve over them? Your family members, your friends. When I mention Jesus to them, they appear to affirm him, right? We mention him, we say just a, a small statement about Jesus, and where they say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, but their lives don't match it at all. They don't look like they go, they, most of them don't go to church. Most of them don't value the word of God. They don't. He's not precious to him. He's maybe fire insurance, a little get a ticket out of hell card. But he's not their life. He's not their joy. They aren't satisfied with him. They don't look like that, do they? That's why when you dig a little deeper into the heart and you you expose a little bit of their their hypocrisy, or how they've rejected Christ in some way. What happens? They get angry at you, don't they? They don't want that, Jesus. (laughs) Those who know the light, what? Come into the light. We come into the light knowing that our deeds are going to be exposed, don't we? But we know that when they're exposed, we have hope in him. And so we repent and trust in him and we acknowledge and confess our sins. If there's an excuse for every one of your sins, beloved, you're not coming into the light. If you justify everything you ever do wrong away, there's a problem. Warning. You might not know Jesus. And this is painful to contemplate, isn't it? I can see why Jesus was a man of sorrows. I can see. What makes people go all the way to the other side of the world to share the gospel to people in Papua New Guinea? It's their love of the precious stone. It's their desire to see other people come to know this precious stone. It aches our soul. But beloved, part of the offense of Jesus is we must love him more than anyone or anything else in this world. Do you hear me? That's very offensive, isn't it? Can you imagine? I I, I can't even imagine. Can you imagine if somebody stood up (laughs) And said, all other religions were, were at the inauguration. 
All other religions, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Islam, all, uh, all false Christianities that don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ are going to hell. Today is the day that everybody that hears my voice needs to repent and believe in the only Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Can you imagine what would happen? I don't think the person would make it through the sentence <laughs> before they were attacked. They wouldn't make it, would they? If I preach this message, this message, to our country, I would probably be assassinated or mocked. They would have to belittle me. They'd have to get rid of that message. But our love for him is greater than even if all the world came after us and praised us. The Jews of Jesus' day knew something about their Messiah. They knew when he came, total allegiance was required. They had embraced him. They had committed. They, they knew they had to commit to him. They had to embrace him fully. They had to submit to him. But when he showed up, he didn't fit their worldview. So what did they do? They rejected him. He was countercultural. He was offensive. He denied self, their self-righteous ways. He exposed them, and so they rejected him. And the same is true today. So why did they reject Jesus? Why did the Jewish people reject their own Messiah? Well, I'll give you an answer. You ready? Quick. Because they're sinners and because God ordained it. Because they're sinners and because God is sovereign over their rejection. He ordained for them to reject him. That's what we see in this passage. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Both are true. They are friends that don't need to be reconciled, as Spurgeon said. It is a truth. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Look at the two parallel reasons. Unbelievers reject Jesus because of their sinful ways. We see it. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. They don't obey the word. In fact, every rejecter of Jesus is characterized as ongoing disobedience to the word. It is the pattern of every unbeliever's heart. The heart is wicked and wants to do what it wants to do, not what God wants. So rejecting the Messiah is natural for the man. Look at if America had been, listen to me closely, if America had been the chosen people of God, they're not, you understand that. If America had been the chosen people of God, America would have rejected Jesus when he showed up. Fact. If Germany, Russia, China, Haiti, Mexico, any of those great nations had been the chosen instrument that God would have brought his Messiah through, guess what they would have done? Rejected him. Fact. People are disobedient to the word. This is what we are characterized by as new, when we're born. We're born as sinners. We are all born disobedient to the word. So was God shocked by this rejection of his son? No, no, you can see how it would be very easy. Okay, they're ordained. They're going to reject him. They've rejected me for thousands of years now. 
when I send my son, they're going to reject him. It all fits. God isn't, God's got it all. He knows. God's plan included the rejection of his own son. God is sovereign over those who reject him also. Listen closely. Again, this passage says this. Look at the passage. It says, and to this, and the doom is not in the original Greek. It says, and to this, they were also appointed. So what is the, why does the NASB supply doom? Well, because the word this is implied back to what? The previous phrase. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. It, that's their doom. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word. Very simple. God appointed, determined, decreed, laid, set that the people would stumble over the stumbling stone. And they would therefore end up apart from God forever. This is hard, but it's the truth. It's what it says. Now understand this. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Nobody in hell deserves to be anywhere but where? Hell. There's nobody in hell going, man, this just isn't fair. They might be saying that, but they're, they're there. God's just. God is absolutely righteous to judge every person who is in hell. And if we question his righteousness and his judgment... Oh, beloved, you better be careful because you might be stumbling over the stone again. God is just. And for you to question his justice, whew, you're treading on thin ice. We all better bow the knee and understand God is God and we are not. As one commentator states about this passage, People who stumble and disobey are responsible for their refusal to trust in Christ. And yet, God has appointed, without himself being morally responsible for the sin of unbelievers, that they will both disobey and stumble. What is that? Both. Man is responsible for their sin. God is sovereign over their sin. God ordained this, but he is not responsible directly for their sin of rejecting him. Again, we must not allow our feelings towards people to distort our view of God. If we think people are relatively good, we will choke on God's sovereignty. Did you hear that? God is sovereign and man is responsible. That's what God's word says. As we humans just have a hard time seeing how they work together, though, don't we? But it's truth. Beloved, so much of who Jesus is offends us, doesn't it, in our flesh? God's sovereignty is often offensive to us. So what keeps believers from following God? What is the one main thing that distinguishes believers from rejectors? What is it? Answer? Grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. I want you to note one more thing about this passage. At the end, it says, 
and to this doom they were appointed, right? You see that word appointed? Guess where, what word it is? It's the same verb, verbal root that comes from, behold, I lay in Zion. It's the same one. Established. The rejection of the Messiah was established also. I guarantee you, if I preach this sermon in probably, what, 75% of the churches in America, I would be probably run out of here on the rail. And, I, and as I thought on this last night and just thought about how hard it is and how difficult it is, I thought to myself, you know, it really doesn't matter what y'all think, though. No offense. I love you. I love everybody in this room. And I know that I probably upset some of you in the room. I'm sorry. But guess what? I'm going to preach the same thing. Because this is what the passage says. And whether y'all love me or not, guess what? I'm going to proclaim his excellencies till the day I go to be with him. I'm a worshiper of the king, the one who died and chose me. So, beloved, we don't compromise truth. For when we compromise truth, we're compromising our Savior. And all of us that know him find great value in him. And he is more valuable than anything in this world. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, thank you for your word we thank you that you love us we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the truth lord we understand that it is all grace that we are born to this living hope we know that it's all grace that you have saved wretched sinners like us we know it's all grace that we don't proudly think that it's because of us we know it's all grace because you have humbled us through a glimpse of your son the one who was ordained to suffer on our behalf he is precious and valuable to us thank you 